Hey, Jay, does Jamie Madrax have an arch nemesis? He sure does, Miles. I mean, one who's not just another one of his dupes. You know, surprisingly, the answer is still yes. Really? Who? Damien Tripp. Damien, the son of Satan? That's Damien Hellstrom. Damien Tripp tried to get Jamie's parents to let them raise him, and when that failed, caused the tornado that killed them. That is highly uncool. And then, after Jamie started X-Factor Investigations, Damien Tripp opened a rival agency. So Tripp is a detective? And CEO, and lead counsel, and also an immortal druid of some sort. All at once? Well, there's more than one of him. So he has powers like Jamie's? No, no, he just hires versions of himself at different ages. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 226 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to another end of an era. I mean, we just a couple weeks ago covered Alan Davis's last arc in Excalibur, and now we're covering Peter David's last, not even arc, but partial arc in X-Factor. Yeah, there's a lot ending right now. It's a weird feeling. It really is. And we're getting into, I don't know, like an era of X-Men that I enjoy, but I feel like one that is a little bit more homogenous. I mean, you have mostly the same collection of writers doing almost everything. Like, yeah, we'll have Demetrius uh, on X-Factor pretty soon, but it still strikes me as the writerly equivalent of how style. Both X-Factor and Excalibur are going to feel a lot more like traditional X-Books, and X-Force has kind of been getting there in its own way as well. Well, what we've got, in essence, is a return to what I think of as the Claremont Simonson era in terms of creative responsibilities, where we've got two primary writers who between them are setting the tone for most of the line. Yeah, I mean, although I kind of feel like that's a rough comparison, just because like, if you're comparing any pair of writers to Claremont and Simonson... Oh yeah, no, no, I'm not comparing their skills, I'm not comparing their work, I'm comparing the relative creative balance of the X line at this point. Yeah, I, I think I would agree with that. But um, yeah, it's definitely the end of an era, a very brief era. Um, at this point, Peter David will have been on X Factor for, I want to say, 20 issues because everybody forgets he was on number 70. He didn't start with number 71. But if you like Peter David's X Factor, thankfully, uh, many, many years later, we'll have you covered. He's going to write over 100 issues straight of X Factor Volume 3, which will later renumber itself to be part of X Factor Volume 1. That's one of my personal favorite X runs. That is X Factor Investigations, right? That's the one, the one led by Madrox that starts with a Madrox multiple choice miniseries, and it is full of so much soap opera goodness and so much bizarre plot. And it's got Layla Miller, possibly the. Most intricate MacGuffin, um, maybe until Hope Summers. Yeah, and I personally like Layla a whole lot better. Now, don't get me wrong, Hope is great, but Layla was, like, really great. They're both pretty great. I think Layla got a little more space to develop a distinct personality because she was really only in one major book after her brief appearance in, in House of M while Hope was, you know, a line-wide MacGuffin. But, yeah, no, they're both good. Speaking of things that are good, and also in places less good, let's talk about this arc. But first, maybe let's talk about what led to this arc, because there's kind of a lot. Yeah, man, this is building on so much of the last decade and change. 
Well, here's the simple part. X-Factor. They are currently, after being the original five X-Men, the United States government-run team of mutants. Hey! We have Havoc, Polaris, Wolfsbane, Multiple Man, Strong Guy, and Quicksilver, and we have their government liaison, Dr. Valerie Cooper. Now let's talk about the complicated parts. I mean, a lot of those parts are intrinsically fairly complicated. But to do that, we're going to have to go back to X-Men, and in fact, to X-Men back in the Australia days, because when Havoc went through the memory-erasing and history-resetting Siege Perilous at the end of the Outback era, he ended up waking up in Genosha, and he not only woke up in Genosha, but he woke up in Genosha as a Genosian magistrate. So what's the deal with Genosha? Or I should say, what was the deal with Genosha at that point in Marvel history? Genosha at that point was basically an apartheid metaphor. It was a state where mutants were heavily oppressed, where they had no rights, and where specifically they were genet enslaved and genetically rewritten as something called mutates. Yeah, and the magistrate role that Alex was in was sort of a human enforcer who tended to go after rebellious mutates and keep the mutates in line. Not a good look for Alex Summers. Well, actually, the uniform did look pretty good on him, but like, you know, metaphorically, ethically. Yeah, yeah, um, I mean, I guess it looked okay on him. It was drawn by Jim Lee a lot of the time. I was a big fan of that. I think you tend to like Jim Lee a little bit more than I do. Anyway, Alex eventually got his memories back, and he ended up fighting alongside the X-Men, and in fact, specifically helping his brother Cyclops finally take out Cameron Hodge, the OG X-Factor villain, who was, by that point, shadow-running Genosha. He was also demonically immortal and cybernetic. There was a lot going on with Cameron Hodge. Thankfully, this arc doesn't worry too much about that. Cameron Hodge leads a complex life. He did, and he also got buried at the end of the Extinction Agenda under a large portion of Genosha. One of the other things that happened in the Extinction Agenda was that some of the characters got turned into mutates. That means they got bonded into these sort of skin suit, uh, like speed skating outfits that they could never take off, and they were rendered mostly mindless and their powers were altered a little. One of the people this happened to was Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane. Well, they weren't just rendered mindless. The thing is, they were rendered specifically docilely obedient, and docilely obedient to particular masters. In Rain's case, to the magistrate, Alex Summers. Now, that wasn't exactly explicit at the time. This is the story arc where it will become so, but you can definitely see the seeds having been planted. After the Extinction Agenda ended, Rain realized that when she was in her wolf form, or even a partial wolf form, she didn't have that docilely obedient thing going on. She had her own personality again. That's why we haven't seen her in her purely human form since the Extinction Agenda. However... She had a huge crush on Alex, and the desire obsessively to please him was still there, and it was unclear whether that was a result of the mutate bonding process or just sort of Rain having a crush on the nearest dude who was nice to her, which is something we'd seen happen before. Spoiler, it's the mutate process. Actually, it's kind of both and another thing, but we'll get to that later in this episode. Now, brief tangent. So we know Alex Summers' problem with redheaded women betraying him. Do you think the reason that he doesn't reciprocate Rain's affection is that, or the fact that she's totally a teenager? I like to assume it's the second, but there might be a little bit of healthy paranoia against any woman with red hair built in as well. She's a teenager, and he's her immediate boss. Like, there are a lot of reasons that relationship isn't an ethical option. So we're going for ethical reasons rather than plot-induced paranoia for the most part. I mean, the plot-induced paranoia might be there as well, but I'd like to think he'd avoid it regardless, and the plot 
induced paranoia just reinforces the call that he would already have made. I feel good about this. Alex Summers in this era is generally a pretty good guy. Yeah. Oh, God. So going through this arc in particular, I keep on getting so angry about ways he's been written subsequently because this is my original Alex Summers. This, this The Alex Summers who is angry at authority, who cares a lot about social responsibility, and who in particular is has has such a strong sense of enduring responsibility to Genosha and specifically to Genosian mutates. Yeah, I miss that guy. Eh, he's been cool here and there. He was in Mutant X for a while. That was a whole thing. But let's get back to stuff that happened before this arc that influences this arc. Okay, so before the overthrow of the initial Genosian government, a group of refugees had left Genosha on a ship. These are the group known as the expatriates. They landed in New York after Genosha had, had been overthrown, after Genosian government had been overthrown, seeking sanctuary. And X-Factor had basically said, okay, we'll help you, we'll champion your cause, but just so you know, Genosha's different now. In fact, Havoc said that X-Factor would take the refugees back to Genosha to show them. But unfortunately, then the Extinction Agenda happened for three issues, and then they all went to therapy for another issue. And that brings us to here except for one thing that happened at the end of that aforementioned therapy issue. Val Cooper got attacked by a toothy tentacly monster, and it was never mentioned again. So that was a whole thing. Yeah, that's gonna have some ramifications down the line. The other thing to know is that a couple of, of the of members of X-Factor, which we'll learn going on, but is good to know going into this, have continued to see Doc Sampson as, as their therapist, which, based on our discussions with Drea, seems like a really terrible idea, but eh, it's working for them. The impression I get is kind of like how Matt Murdock and Jennifer Walters are almost the only lawyers in the Marvel Universe. Like, Doc Sampson is almost the only therapist in the Marvel Universe. You don't have a lot of options. That's not true. There are at least four others. Oh, well, uh, maybe they're not local. There's the guy who doesn't have a name who argued against Matt at the Supreme Court. There's Foggy Nelson. There's Bernadette Rosenthal, who is fucking awesome and everyone forgets. I guess there's Evangeline Whedon. She can turn into a dragon and be a lawyer, but usually not simultaneously. Um, she's, she's in Gifted, too. She totally is. Yes. But for now, let's dive into X-Factor number 88, Random Violence, an issue near and dear to my very young heart. Because when I read it, the character that first appears here, Random, was basically the coolest thing ever, and we'll get to that. He's fun, man. He's so goofy, and he's so 90s. Anyway, this issue is written by Peter David, penciled by Joe Quesada, inked by El Milgram, and colored by Ariane Lenchoke. So, the expatriates, during Executioner's Song, they got tired of waiting around for the crossover to finish, and they took one of their members who'd been beaten in the park by racists, a guy named Taylor, and escapes the hospital with him after knocking out the Madrox dupe that had been watching them. We haven't really seen them since. Well, now we know what they've been up to. What they have they been up to? Oh, they've, they've headed to New York. They've headed to New York and basically taken over a hospital demanding treatment for Taylor. And the mayor of New York, who at this point would, would have been David uh, Dinkins, about whom I know nothing whatsoever except for his name, did what I guess mayors do in the Marvel Universe, which was look through the paper for a relevant want ad. And what a want ad. Got a mutant problem? Call the expert. Which I feel like would have been a reasonably accurate tagline for our show. Yeah, but we wouldn't have gone with the anti-mutant implications. Well, that's very true. What interests me here is that Random, the newspaper advertising anti-mutant mercenary or whatever he is in question, 
um, is basically taking a page from the original X Factor, the ones who said that they were going to hunt down any mutant problems you might have. So that's really interesting to me because Random is going to turn out much later, I believe, to be a little kid whose body is artificially aged, who looks older than he is because of his powers. And that aspect of his story, of his MO, makes a lot more sense to me given that context. Yeah, yeah, that kid would have grown up seeing those X Factor ads. Well, he wouldn't have grown up with them. Like he would have this was this this would have been over like a year or two max. That's true. That's true. But the random we see right now is this hulking, very clearly adult, pale-skinned, biker-looking dude with snake tattoos on his arms that the action figure could never quite print right, and they were always a little misaligned. <laughs> but he's essentially, visually, like the Marvel Universe version of Lobo from DC. No, except Random looks like he was built sloppily out of plaster of Paris, which I love. It's pretty great. So his power is that he can manifest whatever power he needs to protect himself, which is very, very plot handy and very, very 90s. He can also morph his arm into a giant gun for, I don't know, reasons. So that's basically Darwin's power set plus an arm gun. Essentially. And I feel like plus an arm gun is the ultimate 90s suffix. <laughs> So, Random shows up at the hospital, and he just kicks the crap out of all of the expatriates in ways that I have to say, Joe Quesada's pencils make look very goddamn fatal, but apparently they're not. Thankfully, X-Factor shows up pretty quickly, and there's a big fight. So, you've talked a little bit about, about artists' signature things and, you know, the, the techno-organic stuff that you see from Will Sportacio, etc. And Joe Quesada, I think, is shit that looks like ribbons. Yeah, that's true. He does draw, like, characters sort of falling apart and getting all ribbonized. He does draw just, like, ribbony tech and ribbony fleshy stuff. He draws cyclones in any circular air stuff like it's a big swirl of, of ribbons or strips of material, to the point that I actually thought that was what was going on at one point and sort of had to go back and double-check. Oh, man, it turns out Pirouette was just one of those little Skydancer toys. Um, did you ever see the video of a little girl excitedly opening a Skydancer toy in her Christmas present and spinning it and it going directly into the fireplace and that's the whole video? And, like, you feel like such a bad person for laughing, but you can't not laugh? I have not, but that's really funny. <laughs> I feel so bad for that girl, but it's just such a metaphor for so many things that happen in the world. Life in general, kind of. Right? Anyway... Havoc quickly realizes this fight isn't going anywhere good. I mean, Random's powers are 90s enough that they're kind of hard to get through. So he uses what may be the ultimate power in any Western society. And a power that he's singularly well-suited to use as currently a government representative. He says, okay, you're doing this for hire. Um, we'll pay you twice what they are. And Random says, sure. Prodigal and the expatriates are pretty pissed at what they refer to as checkbook heroism, but Havoc is a pragmatic guy, and explains, What was I supposed to do? Risk leveling the hospital? Hundreds of injuries or deaths just to beat him up? The man had a legit grievance, Prodigal. I settled it. I mean, I'm not sure if it was a legit grievance, he was just getting paid to do this, sort of, uh, maybe unethically, but nonetheless, Havoc is being a smart dude I love, second team x-factor havoc so much havoc's arc and what makes havoc interesting in this era of x-factor is largely him coming to terms with and figuring out how to usefully wield privilege yeah yeah basically that and then he has to do that fucking m day speech later grumble 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 yeah man havoc has just gotten worse and worse over the last decade and it makes me really sad but on the other hand you know he's now being written by someone who really likes him and he's at the front of the book so fingers crossed 
And I appreciate that Matthew Rosenberg is writing the current Astonishing X-Men Havoc as somebody who realizes just what terrible decisions he's made for a long time. And who has been through a lot of shit and just sort of come out of it exhausted and, you know, faintly slap happy. Pretty much that. So now that Random is out of the way, off to spawn a rad action figure, as I mentioned, the expatriates and Val Cooper finally agree to Havoc's Genosha plan. They're all going to go to Genosha, and they get on a plane. And there are a couple little things I want to talk about on this plane that are uh, one is important and one's just sort of darkly funny. First, first off is is Madrox's airplane reading and and Rain's relative innocence about this. And I gotta say, this exchange reminds me of the conversations I have with the teenagers in the the explain Discord, where where I'll mention something and they'll just be like, "You know, we're we're all like twenty years younger than you, right?" <laughs> That's so bizarre that people can be twenty years younger than us and still like know how to talk and stuff. And then they teach me slang. It's very delightful. Nice. Maybe someone will eventually explain dabbing to me. Like, I know what it looks like, but I don't know what it means. Or maybe what it means is that it doesn't mean anything. I don't know. It's very confusing. The only thing you really need to know, ultimately, to be cool in the world is that Sluggo is lit. Sluggo is lit. Yeah, so Madrox, anyway, is is reading a book about the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby. Um, and, and Wolfsbane, when she hears this, responds, Ugh, poor Tyke. Have they found the wee one yet? Uh... Not yet, no. Oh, uh, that's dark. Um, listeners, if you're not familiar with why that's dark, uh, just look up Lindbergh, baby. It's dark. Yeah, it's it's dark. Anyway, Wolfsbane, uncharacteristically, starts flirting hard with Madrox, like complete with heart-shaped word balloons. We've seen her be really into Havoc, but this is kind of new. Yeah, and it's uncomfortable, and it's it's drawn as uncomfortable. I mean, this is this is something that's been conveyed pretty consistently and pretty well in the book previously with her with Alex, um, and what we've seen over the course of of X Factor and of, of over the course of her representation post Genosha, post being made into a mutate, is that she's gone from getting these kind of awkward crushes to really intensely and aggressively coming on to the objects of her crushes, and that that happens here as well. And Madrox uh, quickly takes his leave and does kind of the responsible thing. He talks to the grown-ups. And at first they are wondering, is he just like being a dick like he often is? But no, as he says. Hey, you notice I don't pull jokes on rain. It'd be like mugging a hairy smurf. Besides, I draw the line at lying about teammates. So, clearly some stuff is up with Rain beyond typical adolescent crushes, although, having been an adolescent, I mean, yeah, it's totally intense. I get it. It's intense, but but having lots of feelings and, you know, making passes at everyone near you are, are two very, very different things. Well, that brings us to X-Factor number 89, Dark Homecoming. Once again, written by Peter David and penciled by Joe Quesada, inked by El Milgram, and colored by the inestimable Glynis Oliver. So X-Factor arrives at Genosha's Capitol building uh, very awkwardly and uncomfortably, and no one is very happy being there. Strong guy's stuck in the limo as he tries to get out of it. Madrox is doing the clown car thing and having dupe after dupe after dupe get out of the car. Their boss must be Alexasperated Summers. Miles, I know you live across the country, but I'm making a dad joke jar and you're fucking PayPaling me a quarter to put in it. Totally worth the 25 cents. I would have paid 50. So there's a new president, another female president, which is kind of cool. And she seems kind of reasonable and friendly toward the expatriate. She says she gets why they left. She welcomes them home. So far, no red flags. 
Oh man, I think you like the the current Genosian administration much more than I do. I think you know she she comes across as someone who is is doing her best to appease everyone and not making changes to the status quo as radical as the ones needed when you have enslaved and and mind wiped half your population. Well, there are some extenuating circumstances which we'll get to, but nonetheless, no, fair point. Di- hard disagree about this. It's a legacy virus. That's so extenuating. Yeah, and like five people are sick so far, and they think it's just something related to the genetic engineering of the mutates because they're the only mutants on Genosha, so they don't realize it's contagious. Well, maybe maybe she's read ahead. I mean, we have. Anyway, along with the new president, we also have a new gene engineer. You know, the head genetic manipulating scientist. Uh, her I like a little less. Yeah, she is definitely conspiring with someone to wipe out mutants. Um, but... Also, speaking of, of government changes, it would have been a really good move optics-wise to change the name of that job. It's true. I mean, there are so many euphemistic things you can call that. You you could just have a, like, Secretary of Health and Human Services. That does sound a little less evil, it's true. Thankfully, we have a scientist who is, unless you look at certain storylines, definitely much less evil. Moira McTaggart is here. She's helping the Gene Junior out with some sciencey stuff. And remember, Jamie Madrox worked for Moira for, like, many, 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 many years, basically in between his first appearance in an old Fantastic Four annual and Fallen Angels, and then for a while after that, too. And I really love the ribbing he gives her about how gone she's been. Yeah, he was her lab assistant, and he was also, he basically grew up on Muir Island, because remember, he had been living alone on a farm for about a quarter of his life, and when his suit malfunctioned, he gradually lost his mind, he was briefly a villain, so he's, he spent most of his early adulthood on Muir Island. Yeah, so Moira, to her credit, apologizes to him, apologizes to Rain with all that stuff that's been going on, Moira knows she's been distracted by, like, the Executioner's song and saving Xavier. Sorry about the path of neglect. Exactly that. Here's some gold. <laughs> One of my favorite magic cards. Uh, reparations, I think it was. Sorry yeah, about your village. Here's some gold. Oh, sorry I burned down your village. Here's some gold. <laughs> so good. Classic. Well, that apology doesn't stop Wolfsbane from having yet another pop culture dream. This time, Havoc is Aladdin, and she's playing this Robin Williams-esque genie, very timely for when this came out. But then Alex Adden wishes to be a cowboy and, like, brands Rain's mutate number on her forehead. Like, it gets really dark really fast. Yeah, that's fucked up, man. Seriously. Don't do that, fake Alex Aladdin. I mean, I I love that, like, when, you know, someone you care about talks about how you were a dick in their dream, and, like, you just feel like you sort of have to apologize, even though it wasn't actually you. I'm feeling very called out right now. They get a tour of the new Genosian presidential palace, including its very luxurious, uh, as the president refers to it, Garden of Earthly Delights, which mostly seems to be a garden of topiary delights. But, okay, Garden of Earthly Delights. That's that triptych by Hieronymus Bosch where the right side of it is just, like, raw Boschian id? Like, okay, listeners, look up Garden of Earthly Delights if you have a chance, because this shit is bonkers. It is amazingly weird. This is not nearly as excellent or weird or Boschian a garden. Right, there are no birdmen eating naked guys and pooping them out, or like giant pairs of ears holding knives, or, or pig nuns, or anything like that. I feel like Bosch would be very disappointed with this garden. Bosch would not have fared well under the Comics Code Authority. <laughs> That's probably true. He would have gone down along with EC Comics. Yes, yes, he would. 
<laughs> and thus, this episode has made its most important statement. But the president explains in her inaptly named garden, she and the new gene engineer, Sasha Ryan, have been trying really hard to undo all the changes that were done to the mutates during the previous regime, you know, trying to debond them from their skin suits, give them back their normal personalities, fix their power up. But it's really slow going. She also points out that the mutates don't currently have representation or direct advocacy in the government, and that's a role she hopes that Prodigal will step into. Again, like, to me, she's coming off as overall a good person who's trying to make steps in the right direction. Like, not enough steps, not quickly enough, but I respect intent a great deal, and her intent seems pretty noble. Yeah, I mean, I think her intent is basically good. I don't think she's doing enough, and I don't think she's recognizing the issues inherent to what she's trying to do enough. I mean, first of all, it's utterly shameful that mutates have not been involved in the reconstruction of Genosha from the beginning, deliberately and and pointedly. And the fact that the president is, as far as we know, for the first time reaching out to someone to represent that community now is some nonsense. And she's specifically, in reaching out to Prodigal, she's reaching out to the one mutate we've seen who is less visibly, less behaviorally, less clearly other, and less cl- specifically less clearly traumatized and affected by mutate conditioning than the ones around him. And I have really mixed feelings about that. I mean, I, I, I recognize to an extent you know, that there's a degree of necessity in an advoca- advocacy pr- position for that, but at the same time, it relegates mute mutates input and value to proportional to their ability to deny their own experiences and also to again pass as as something that they're not as something that has effectively been stripped of them in ways that seem very specifically based around keeping the humans around them more comfortable well and actually that brings up a question is prodigal an actual mutator was he a mutant that escaped genosha before the state had a chance to put him through the mutate process. I mean, we don't see him in a skin suit. We see him as having a normal, non-subservient personality. And in fact, that's how we see, I believe, all or almost all of the expatriates. That's a really, really good point. And it's, it's again, and I will I will always go back to the, the mutants, uh, mutants as metaphors for the disabled community, but in, in terms of advocacy and who gets to have a voice and be represented where, um, this continues to be a fairly apt metaphor. It does. Okay, so I modified my statement. Genosian president, who I don't think ever actually gets a name beyond being the president, um, your intentions are good, but you should listen to Jay because Jay has good advice about building a society. Well, no, you should listen to mutates. You should listen to Jay who says you should listen to mutates. Because you exist in a fictional world where they are the relevant parties, not me. (laughs) Right. Well, anyway... As all of this is going on, all of these uh, debates that Jay and I are having about the president who cannot hear us... Wolfsbane and Moira are taking a daughterish, motherish walk through the very suburban streets of Genosha, and Rain just opens up to Moira. She's like, hey, mom, I've been into boys, but like, no, seriously, really, really into boys, and it's kind of freaking me out. Um, and Moira responds appropriately, uh, honey, we call that puberty. Right. But then Rain looks over at the neighborhood dogs and talks about how she's worried she's more like them than like a girl and that no man will ever look at her like Alex looks at Lorna. And what's interesting here is that the art shows Rain looking like super freaked out, like panicking, like her life is being devastated by this realization, which feels off. And 
Thankfully, you remember Austin from last episode? Well, one of the interviews he linked to in his article about this issue talked about Peter David's original intent for this scene. Jay, do you want to talk about that? Well, let me go back first and say that literally the Rain's one serious relationship so far has been with another part wolf shapeshifter and has been mostly in, in wolf form. So this is sort of a weird extrapolation, but... I mean, she was with Richter for a while, and it was never quite clear under the comics code, like, how far the relationship went, but I got the impression that they were, you know, very much teenagers. That's true, I guess. Um, but yeah, so apparently Peter David had originally intended for Rain to be, the, the, the cause of, of Rain's, Rain's sudden boy craziness to be that she was in heat because she had spent too much time in wolf hybrid form. Right, and if you look at that revelation, Rain's freakout makes a lot more sense. Apparently the dogs were all barking at her because they detected that she was both, you know, canine-slash-lupine-ish and in heat. And, uh, boy, that would have been a different plot. Yeah, I'm really, 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 really glad that that was rescripted and they did not go in that direction because Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a whole thing. Um... Anyway, Moira does take Rain's freak out uh, seriously, and she brings her to the Genosian Science District, where they do science, I suppose, and has a bunch of tests run on her. And the tests turn up something that we, as people who have read this arc before, and you as listeners who have heard us talking about it before, already know, but that Rain and the people around her didn't. During her time as a mutate in the Extinction Agenda, Rain was genetically bonded to Alex Summers because he was a magistrate and she was a mutate. And so her intense infatuation with him, yeah, that was created within her artificially. That's really, really, really fucked up. And I think handled about as well as an, and responsibly as it can be subsequently, at least in this arc. They also conclude that... Um, that that Rain's, I, I think that the phrase used is accentuated proclivities, are at least partly due to her wolf form, but that the Havoc-focused stuff is specifically a result of, of what you went through in Genosha. Rain is not happy about any of this. Make it stop! Didn't you hear me? I'm a good girl! I am! Make it stop! Oh, kiddo. God, seriously, and that's one of the reasons that it's all this fucked up stuff that's being done to Rain, like, that's one of the reasons I'm okay with it as a plot point, because it's handled overall really compassionately, like, we really feel for Rain. You know, there are times when she's sexual, but it's clear that she's sort of a victim in all of this, and I just, it's so nice to see something like this handled well when it could be handled so badly in so many ways. That's a switch I really, really appreciate, um specifically between David and, surprisingly, Lobdell, who's going to come on the book after him, is that Rain's infatuation stop, immediately stops being the object of, of jokes. Like, she goes from be, it goes from being sort of the thing that the book's kind of laughing at to a pretty serious arc about her, about agency and consent. It's, yeah, I like it a lot. Meanwhile, though, the new G-Engineer, so Jay, you mentioned that she was conspiring with evil people. She, in fact, goes to meet with a mysterious silhouette that looks kind of like Sigma from Mega Man X. Apparently, the silhouette and the G-Engineer want to get rid of all mutants everywhere. So this plotline doesn't go anywhere for literally more than a decade. Apparently, this shadowy figure originally was going to be a character called Armageddon, 
But when Scott Lobdell took the book over, he's like, hey, Armageddon's cool. Peter David should use him in Hulk, and Peter David did. What it will eventually be revealed is that this is a character called the Isolationist from X-Factor Volume 3. His deal is that he can hear the thoughts of every mutant in the world, and it's driving him crazy, so he just wants to kill them all. So um, spoilers for like more than a decade after this, I guess. You'd think he could just make a fancy hat. Right? He could just wear Magneto's helmet. That should take care of it, right? It, yeah, in theory, as long as you don't go in through the face. Well, anyway, we do have a couple of backup stories at the ends of number 88 and number 89. You noticed we haven't talked about Quicksilver at all, and that's because he took a break. He talks to Val Cooper and politely asked, asked her if he could go and try to reconcile with his wife, Crystal. And I do enjoy her surprise at him not being a total asshole in his response. I am practicing the art of communicating with as little condescension as I can. It's a skill I might require. So Val says, hey, sure, you're my employee. I want to take good care of you. She even gives them, him the keys to a safe house that the government uses sometimes in their missions, just as a place to have a nice retreat. And sure enough, Quicksilver and Crystal run out to Maine. And the writer and artist remember that if you're running with Quicksilver, you probably need a breathing mask and you're also going to have a hard time talking out loud. Kind of like you remember my old convertible from high school, Jay, where like the top was so rotten you had to yell to hear each other on the road. I do. That I'm I'm still amazed that that car actually drove. I mean, not for very long, but for a little while. Well, and and also that that we survived driving around in it for as long as we did. Hooray! So they head out to the cabin, and they're actually having a really good time. Crystal talks about how Quicksilver's even developing a sense of humor, and uh, that maybe the only thing he needed to do is to stop being on a team with evil in its name to become less of a jerk, which I appreciate. Unfortunately, as as they they um, in, engage in 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 lovemaking down by the fire, I think on a bearskin rug, even because some things are just. Some cliches are worth leaning into. A nearby mustachioed man in a rocking chair radios into his boss to, quote, put the operation into effect. This is some kind of evil conspiracy happening. And the entire purpose of this evil conspiracy, we will learn, is to make Quicksilver feel bad because that's what evil conspiracies do to him. This is like an evil individual all over again. Oh, God, it totally is. But Quicksilver doesn't know any of this. He's having a good time having sexy outdoor showers with Crystal. He's having very entertaining Peter David written banter. And there's actually one little exchange I do want to go into when Crystal asks if there's anything she should know. I mean, Pietro's so different. And he replies, Well, yes, I suppose there is. This is very difficult for me to admit, but I'm seeing someone. I should have known. The one with the green hair, right? Why, yes. Yes, that's right. I'm not surprised. She's gorgeous. So this was all... She? No, he. You're... you're seeing a man. When, uh, when did you first uh, realize? The first time I spoke to him, it it all seemed so absurd, but he's very non-judgmental and he brings fresh insight. You do understand, don't you? I... I guess I have to. Rain is seeing him, too. And there's this wonderful, like, what-the-fuck silent reaction shot of Crystal. And, of course, it quickly becomes clear that Pietro is talk- talking about seeing a therapist, the green-haired Doc Sampson. But this is just such, I don't know, like, David does this kind of dialogue so beautifully, and I still find this hilarious, like, so many years later. I 
have trouble finding this as funny as I know I should. Like it is really funny and it's well written and it's silly. I guess I, I think I like this this gag better when it's played um, in reverse when it's subverted in in Young Avengers. But the the yeah, haha! It's funny because she thinks he's gay. I mean, it was 1993, but at the same time, I just love I just love the way the misunderstanding is handled, and like the escalation of it all. I hear what you're saying, but I think it's pretty great. It's it's funny. It's it's wittily written. It's it's just it's just something that I am I am perhaps enjoying less than I would have as a as a as a, a benighted 1993 person. I don't know. That's valid. Very much feels like a product of its time in ways that I've grown less patient with over the years. How's that? That's fair. Well. Anyway, Quicksilver goes to pick up some groceries for a romantic dinner, and he's met with the he's met by a reporter who shows him pictures of Crystal being romantic with another dude, the Black Knight, although that's not mentioned. And Pietro threatens to kill him in a bunch of undetectable ways because Pietro is very easily infuriated. The reporter, not the other guy in the photos. Uh, right. And after that, Pietro has the seed of doubt planted. He's all cold to Crystal, and she just sees him as the old Pietro again, and their vacation ends crappily, much to the delight of that mustachioed guy and the reporter guy who meet over coffee, talking about how they won because they messed up this relationship, and they stimulated the homicidal impulses of the son of Magneto. What the fuck? Well, we'll find out that um, Magneto-related stuff is going to be a big deal soon with Fatal Attractions, and in fact, the Acolytes and the various followers of Magneto have quite an agenda in quite a few directions. But let's go ahead back to Genosha to number 90, A Green and Tender Place. This is written by Scott Lovedell with pencils by Joe Quisada and Buzz, and inks by Al Milgram, colors by Tom Smith. And this is basically Lovedell doing what Lovedell does in this era, which is to say he writes the sl- slightly less effective off-brand version of the previous writer, he's only gonna gonna script two issues. And um, while he's a little off on the character voices and he's leaning a little bit too hard into a few Peter David motifs, there is some stuff in here that I really appreciate, mostly what I brought up before as far as Rain and her, her depiction. Exactly. And that's sort of one of the plot lines of the next couple of issues. We have Rain trying to figure out how to claim agency, and we also have what's been going on with the mutates. Right. So, yeah, so we're basically going to follow those two running plot lines plus a little tiny background B-plot. Um, now, both of these are set against the backdrop of Genosha's shaky attempts at reconstruction, which, as we mentioned, are kind of failing. They're using all kinds of bullshit excuses to not usefully help or offer reparations and rights to the mutates, the most significant of which is that the mutates are apparently dying of an unknown disease. Spoiler, this will turn out to be the legacy virus. However, Genosha thinks that it's a result of the mutate process. It's spreading exclusively in the mutate population. We're going to find out later that's because those are the only mutants on Genosha at the time, but they don't know that. And it's weird because they're also treating it as highly contagious to everyone else, which I guess is a reasonable precaution, but still flies in the face of everything they've said they're certain to, they're certain about with regards to it. Well, I think part of it is that, you know, the rest of the mutates, of whom there are quite a few, are not infected. And if this right. impacts mutants, and if it is indeed contagious, then they don't want it getting out to more mutates. True, and I guess vectors of infection might be an issue. Totally. But let's talk a little bit about Wolfsbane, because we've both talked about how we really appreciate the way the story is handled, and I want to go into what happens here. Right. 
So Rain is understandably still freaked out and making bad decisions, and she picks a fight with Polaris. A fight which is actually kind of cool because you know how Polaris has that new super sexy kind of dumb looking costume that she unveiled at the end of number 87? Well, apparently it's made of metal. It's made of sort of this gold stuff, and she can use that with her powers, which is smart. I appreciate that. I appreciate that, but it's still a terrible costume. It totally is. But Lorna responds actually very compassionately. She tells Rain, look, I've been controlled by other people too, like a lot of people. Mesmero, Eric the Red, Malice for like 30 issues, the Shadow King kind of. And I've been working on how to take my life back. And Wolfsbane, if you'll let me, I want to help you with that. And I just always appreciate how... The Havoc Polaris Wolfsbane triangle isn't treated as one of those, ah, it's women fighting over a man. Like, the characters are overall pretty mature, and Polaris is generally very mature, and I love that that comes out here as well. Yeah, I feel like, especially given that they're the only women on the team at the time, having them be, again, not just arguing over a guy is great, and also having their relationship and having their point of of commonality be something other than a guy feels significant as well. This is the shift to Rain's plot being about Rain rather than about Alex. Exactly. Now, Moira McTaggart, meanwhile, she's off to France to meet Xavier to talk about this strange virus because she has some concerns. We will see her there on Kenny X-Men number 300, which we covered a while ago. But Rain is, like, so crushed that now, of all times, after this horrible revelation, her mother figure is leaving, and Rain just opens her heart, and Moira's really cold, and that seems kind of out of character, and I can only attribute it, I guess, to a new writer taking over, because last issue, Moira was really nice and compassionate. Really? See, I would attribute it to the, look, Rain, I know you're having a bad time, but people are also literally dying, and, I mean, look, Moira's not gonna win Mother of the Year on any front, and Rain's grievances are absolutely reasonable, but so is Moira's choice in this context. I suppose that's true. I mean, I was gonna say she's not evil in sex anymore, so what's her excuse? But I guess lots of people dying is an excuse. Yeah, it's not an excuse. It's it's a reason, and it's a reasonable reason, I think. Well, as that's going on, one of the mutates in critical care decides, hey, I don't want to die in a hospital bed. I want to die with dignity. I'm getting out of here. And this is mutate number 24601. Yep, they did that. Uh, listeners, if you're not familiar, that is, of course, the prisoner number that Jean Valjean has in Les Miserables. So I, I, I feel like I should take this point to say that we were recording this somewhat later in the evening than we usually do, specifically because I got way behind on work because I decided that the only appropriate response to this was to rewrite the second most complicated song in the Les Mis musical to be about X Factor. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it right now because my voice can't pitch predictably and Miles isn't going to sing it because I don't think he's familiar enough with the musical. But um, we're, we're hoping that maybe by the time this episode goes live, uh, we, we, we might have a version for you. If not, it'll be written out in the visual companion and you can record your own. The main thing I know about Les Miserables is that there's a fighting game in Japan and one of the characters you can play is Robo Jean Valjean. And uh, now you know. That, that basically covers the important points of the novel and musical, too. That's what I figured. But let's move on to X-Factor number 91, the last issue we're covering this episode, Underpinnings. Written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by, well, it says Joe Quesada, but it's actually Jan Dersima, one of my very favorite artists in comics, actually. She did a great run of Star Wars Legacy, inked by Al Milgram and colored by Tom Smith. Yeah, Dersima is great. Um, and we open with, with narration about, basically, Alex Summers has a bad day every day. There was a time when Alex Summers couldn't conceive of a situation where he'd ever use his mutant ability against another living being. But that was before. 
before he took the codename Havoc and fought at his, his brother's side as an X-Man. Before he was asked to lead X-Factor, the mutant activist group formed under auspices of the United States government. Before Genosha, a small isle nation whose infrastructure was forged through the oppression of mutates. As evident by the zeal with which Havoc battles these Genosian magistrates, it's clear that some things change, and some don't. That's right, he still hasn't finished his dissertation. <laughs> well, that and the answer to most problems in the Marvel Universe is to wear a cool technological-looking spacesuit, which is what all of X-Factor does to prevent getting infected as they chase down Mutant 24601. Because the Magistrate said, hey, we got this, but the Magistrate's plan was to just kill this guy to prevent infection. X-Factor doesn't want that to happen. They're like, dude, killing is only cool when the X-Men are being really edgy. It's not cool now. The magistrates also very much seem to be wildly racist and completely in line with the previous established power structure and order. Which, again, problems. You can't massively overhaul your unequal society and leave the police force exactly as it is. That doesn't work. So true. Well, everybody hunts through the sewers, um, aided by this cool wall-sized digital map with little moving tokens for all the people in the sewers, complete with X-Men logos for X-Factor. Yeah, I want to know who programmed that because it's weird. Also, so Polaris finds this and she describes it as, as, as being sanitation central. There are no tools in it. There are no materials. There are no kinds of control panels. There's just this big map. So what we learned from it is that the Genotians have, have programmed little circular tokens to move around the map, including ones with X's on them for X-Men or X-Factor. And also that the Genotian sewer system is shaped like a massive stylized spider web. I mean, cool, I guess? Well... Wolfsbane is using her spacesuit to be all sneaky and uh, attacks a bunch of magistrates like some sort of sewer monster coming up from under the water, and it's actually really cool. Yeah, it's terrific. And I really appreciate that the rest of X-Factor's take on Rain's situation right now and how generally angry she is at Genosha and at the magistrates is basically, yeah, this rage is legit, and if she wants to rampage, we will absolutely have her back. Man, this, which again, remember when Alex Summers was legitimately progressive and socially responsible, although he's also kind of myopically self-absorbed with regards to Rain, which she totally calls him out on, and it's brilliant. Will you listen to yourself? I need. I want. What about me, Alex? What about what I need? What about what I want? I need to have you stop telling me what I should and shouldn't do, because I didn't ken which thoughts are mine anymore, and which are those I'm thinking just because you tell me to. What I want... What I want is the one thing you cannot seem to give me. My love? Nay. I understand my crush was a side effect of the bonding process. What I want more than anything else is to have my life back. Not everything is about you, Alex. While the rest of X-Factor is beating up magistrates, Jamie finds the missing prisoner 24601, who's dying face down in the neon green sewer water. And... Against his better judgment, Jamie decides to form a duplicate outside of his spacesuit to perform CPR on, on this guy, but reabsorbs the duplicate before the rest of X-Factor get there so they don't know that he's been exposed to whatever this is. And this is part of why I love Jamie Madrock so much. I mean, yes, he's a goofy character who spends more time playing pranks on people than being an actual hero, but when it comes down to it... Jamie's a character whose compassion is bigger than his judgment, and 
I love that about him. I love that he makes bad decisions for the best possible reason. I love how flawed he is in that regard. That's one of the reasons I find him such a compelling, sympathetic character. So 24601 just wants to die with some degree of agency or dignity. He does not want to die in the care of the same people who enslaved him, even if that's not their nominal relationship anymore. And they don't give him that. They take him back to the hospital. It's pretty sad, but I guess at least they don't, you know, murder him in the sewers, so it's better than that. And the president thanks X-Factor for reminding her that there's a better way, that she knows Genosha still does things badly in a lot of ways, but she appreciates X-Factor showing them a more positive example. And I don't know. I mean, again, she's fucking up in a lot of ways. She does seem to be trying, and I really want her to learn from this. Like, you know, the future of Genosha is very complicated and very fucked up, but I like to think that just for a moment, the president realizes, oh, hey, some of the shit I've been doing kind of sucks. I'm going to try to turn it around before Magneto uh, takes over the nation after Fabian Cortez makes us all kill each other, and then it gets blown up by Sentinels. But she's still not recognizing the fundamental issue with the process, which is that she's still basically taking a paternalistic viewpoint on on the mutates. She's not involving them in governance. She's not asking them what they need. She's just saying, oh, well, I didn't make the best call for them. I'll make a better call next time. Yeah, no, that is very, very true. Well, I'm sure there's a splinter timeline where she uh, does that better. We just aren't covering it in the 616, unfortunately. Or maybe where someone else is president. That could work, too. As all this has been going on, Quicksilver has not been with the team. After his shitty vacation ended because of jerks, Val Cooper's been also being a jerk, telling him that the team doesn't need him, that, you know, really they're kind of better off without him on this mission. And, I mean, okay, we know that she's been acting funny ever since she got tentacle-monstered, but uh, not like that. Well, not like that as far as we know. And the way she's drawn here, she's like this cross between fucking Alucard from Helsing and Gendo Akari from Evangelion. She just looks pure goddamn evil, steepling her fingers with her big grin in the shadows behind him. Well, she's got a reverse Gendo going on, which is that her eyes are always in the sh- in shadows. Uh, yes, well, okay, good point. But still, similar principle. So... I do enjoy here that we were catching that she's trying to break Quicksilver down. Those weird people on Quicksilver's Quicksilver's vacation were trying to break him down. Essentially, they're all trying to Magneto-eyes the son of Magneto, and that is going to be a big deal coming up in Fatal Attractions. Quicksilver is his own jerk. Totally. Speaking of jerks... Do you remember Vic Chalker and Rick Chalker, the brothers who came up with complicated plans to kill all the mutants and ended up killing themselves very ignominiously? Turns out there's another brother. This is the one and only Dick Chalker, and Dick Chalker is specifically the root of his siblings' anti-mutant sentiments. He is a giant reptile lizard dude, and... um. He's got a bone to pick when he's 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 attempting to atone for his past. I've used my mutant dinosaur power until now to commit robberies, murder, mayhem, postal fraud, all the time blackening the family name of Chalker and inciting mutant hatred in my kin. And he's decided that the only way to get to atone for this 
is um, going to be to wipe out all of the mutants, which is weird since part of the thing that he's blaming himself for is inciting anti-mutant hatred. Well, he doesn't have much of a chance to do so because on the same page he gets hit by a truck. I love that each subsequent Chalker dies more and more quickly and ignominiously. Like, Vic first appeared in number 72 and then died all the way in 77. Rick Chalker appeared and died in 83. And Dick Chalker dies on one page. And this isn't just like a little gag that's gone now. No, the next X-Factor annual is going to be all about the Chalkers. And I still can't freaking believe that's a thing. But um, we'll get to that. Choices have been made. One of the choices we make is to answer the questions from our listeners. Geek Haven asks on Tumblr, What happened to all the human residents of Genosha once Magneto took over? Did they all leave? I can't imagine a lot of them wanting to stick around once he took over and made a mutant nation. Is this ever addressed or explained in the comics? Um, it actually uh, kind of is, yeah. So there's a 1999 miniseries called Magneto Rex, which just makes me think of Magneto with like little tiny arms going around trying to eat everyone. Um, I don't think that's actually what it's about, although it's been a while. But it takes place after Fabian Cortez, what a jerk, started a mutate uprising in Genosha, which resulted in the whole government being slaughtered and sent the nation into total war. After this, Magneto demanded at the end of the Magneto War that Genosha be granted to him as a mutant-only nation, and the UN complied. Now, I got the impression that most humans got out at this point, but not all of them, because there were still some magistrates there leading the remaining humans in rebellion, and as you might imagine, if they were going up against Magneto, that um, didn't go very well. So basically after that, it was just mutants, I think right up until the time that in Grant Morrison's run, Sentinels came and killed like everybody on the entire island. We know that Genosha did have some human population at that point. For instance, we know for a fact that Kitty Pride's father was living there at the time and specifically doing volunteer work. Uh, true, but not like, you know, just a bunch of people going about their normal human lives. Like, he was there for a specific reason. Okay, fair enough. So, uh, it's been a long time since I've read those, and uh, the internet is incomplete, but I'm pretty sure that's the deal. So, short version... The humans saw which way the wind was blowing once Magneto took over and mostly got out, except for the ones who decided to take up arms and fight, and they mostly got killed. John Wagner emailed us to ask, If Rogue were to absorb the powers of both Mystique and Jamie Madrox, would each multiple be able to shapeshift independently? So, I'm fairly sure I've actually spoken about this on the show before, because that's basically my theory about the source of Wolverine's ubiquity. Right, that's why he can be in so many titles at the same time, because Rogue just absorbed him and absorbed multiple men. Oh no, she doesn't need to have absorbed, absorbed Logan for this to have worked. She's absorbed Mystique and multiple men, and there was a brief period where she had access to all of the powers she'd ever absorbed. Ah, but as we learned, because Wolverine's adamantium is not part of his power set, when Mystique turns into him, his claws aren't actual metal. And because the Wolverines in all those different books had metal claws, Rogue would have also, except wait, that would have been a problem as well. Maybe she just touched some adamantium and absorbed it, kind of like how later Ninja Turtles characters could just be mutant, like, what fucking ever? There's a mutant garbage guy. Ooh, maybe she touched the absorbing man at some point? There we go, and he touched adamantium. Okay, problem solved. Could he selectively change parts of his body? Um, I'm not sure. I always just saw him turn his entire body into things. And also that big, like, weapon he used, the big ball and chain thing. The point is, options exist. So the basic answer, John, is yes, at least consistently with some of the ways Rogue's powers have been portrayed in books so far. The actual answer is basically depends on who's writing. 
pretty much that. But overall, as far as we know, when Rogue absorbs somebody's powers, she absorbs all of their powers. And since Madrox's dupes can make dupes, well, there you go. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and contributions at certain levels come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. As always, let's hear from the angry Claremontian narrator. Do you really think you've cleaned up your mess, Peter Hammerson? That you can just move on with your life and leave behind the chaos you have wrought? What naive optimism. And what dangerous blindness to the specter of Chris Winfield following ever in your shadow, bent only on revenge. And with some difficulty, I will now pass the microphone to the immortal cybernetic severed head of Cameron Hodge, still buried under 250,000 tons of Genosian rubble. Forgotten. Revenge. Jim Burton. Paul Aronofsky. Color-coded binders. Still alive. And with that, Jay and Miles explain the X-Men was recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll... Wolverine fights Hydra, Snake Dudes, Feelings, and his own skeleton as we take a look at the graphic novels Inner Fury and Killing. At the end of the fight, you end up a page older. And that's all you can say for the X Factor life. It's a struggle, it's a war. And just when you think that you're winning, you find yourself stuck on the moon, facing down strife. And the fight's just beginning. At the end of the fight, you're another fight older. And the X on your jacket won't keep up the chill. And the readers all hurry past To the six other experts they're buying As the legacy fire spreads fast To ready to kill One fight nearer to dying At the end of the fight there's another fight coming Across the next week and end will soon With a strong little break in seconds For shadowy fatal attractions There's a red news to the three weapons Those are the greatest and reactions And the future is not looking debriefing you don't get to slack in a government job we got better things to do and the system doesn't seem fair after all we threw all the punches because we don't care and we, and we need, need a vacation. vacation have you seen how cooper is fuming today she might be possessed she seems so out of sorts 
Step it up, Summers, there's paperwork waiting. They're not dissertations, just mission reports. At the end of the fight, it's another fight over. To whatever extent superhero fights end. Fight Magneto, fight the blob. Fight some guy we just met in the sewer. But that man at least it's a job. Just fight the next people do work. Cause there's no resolution inside.